What a city we all get to share. I'm just again freshly reminded of Cape Town, uh, the Netball World Cup, I think, was like stirred it in me, all the footage around that, and everyone looking and going, what a city, what a city, full of people living full lives. I think of some of the things that uh, make our city tick. It's like, its motto is like, work hard, play hard. Joe Burgers, you really specialize on the work hard part. We kind of are a bit more work smart, we, and then play hard. We're the play hard people. We really know how to, um, how to do things in a way that is open to adventure, open to experimentation. I mean, who else is jumping into cold water early in the morning and, and getting dressed up in fluffy gowns? Who else is getting into the latest exercises and fashion things? Our city is a, our city is a wonderful city. And yet, when you scratch a little bit below the surface, I think sometimes you see that there are high levels of anxiety. Uh, psychologists in our city are struggling um, because they're getting overworked. Our psychologists are needing psychologists at the moment. It's, a, it's unfortunate, but there is literally a long waiting list of people um, because beneath the surface, we're not as happy as things seem. It seems like it doesn't carry all the way through this, this sense of wanting to work hard and play hard. And as a community, when we gather, we, we look at our city, we're part of our city, and we believe Jesus Christ is worth taking a closer look at. Let's, Jesus, it's, let's let Jesus speak to us in his own words. In Matthew 11, he says this, and this is the passage we've looked at for the last couple of weeks. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You might not know this at this stage, but this is the one passage where Jesus describes his heart, the core, that the language of the heart. It's not the emotional part. The, the heart is described as the core, the soul, the essence. Jesus could have used many, many words, but he uses the words gentle and lowly. He describes his core as being someone who's gentle, kind, considerate, empathetic, and lowly, uh, accessible, not not on some pedestal, but with you, nearby at all times. He has many things, but he chooses to describe his heart as gentle and lonely. And as we as a community, we believe Jesus and we draw close to him. We believe in his kindness and goodness and his accessibility. And so the number one thing that, that we have in common is that we are described as apprentices of Jesus. We want to be with him, become like him, do what he would do as a community. If you go on our website, you'll see it says, come follow Jesus with us. That really sums up what we're about. Come follow Jesus with us. And many people would say, that's cool for you. That's not what I would say is at the center of what I want to do. And that's fair enough. I mean, we know truth is up for grabs in many ways. People are debating, you know, what would be the solution to the problem we find. And I think everyone looks at the world and says, there's something's not quite right. I mean, I don't think there's many people saying, no, everything's going well. And so the debating point is the community. We believe Jesus holds the truth, this offer to come to him is key, but others would say, no, just a little bit of electricity would be fine. That's all we need. You know, um, consistent education that impacts everyone. Politicians that are a little bit less self-interested and more interested in people. Maybe someone's saying, no, I've noticed the demise of men in society. Men don't know what it means. There's tox toxic masculinity. There's all these other things. In South Africa, there's unemployment. There's so many solutions that could be offered, but we want to we wanna look at what Jesus would say to us. If the problem of the world at the moment, what would Jesus who's gentle and lonely say to us? And we're going to look today at two encounters, two encounters of Jesus with two very different people, seemingly very different people. And we're going to learn what Jesus 
does in both these encounters is actually uncover what the real problem is. Below the surface, what's really going on? You see, Jesus is doing a masterclass in helping us understand ourselves. And so we're going to learn from two people. The one is the ultimate insider, Nicodemus. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He's got it all together. He's in John chapter 3. And then the very next chapter, John chapter 4, there's an outcast lady, a Samaritan woman at the well. And very often these two stories are, are taught separately. But I think John wants us to put them together so that we can compare and contrast. Because as widely different these two people might seem, the inside and the outcast, there's actually a lot that they have in common. And so our, our kind of title for today is Jesus, Hope for Insiders and Outcasts. We're going to consider them together. Because although they seem so different, we're going to notice their differences are actually quite superficial. So let's start. Let's start with the outcast. Let's have a look at the story. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they're hungry. It's noon. It's hot. And so his disciples go off to get food, and Jesus is left at a well. And let's pick up the story. He's sitting at the well. A woman from Samaria, this is John chapter 4, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's, there's more, there's more, but let's stop there. Let's take a look at what's happening here. The first thing I want to point out is, is the shock and the awe of what's happening here might be lost on us because we don't know the full context of what's happening. You can see the woman in verse 9 says, I've underlined it, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's kind of shocked because what is actually happening is incredibly radical. Jesus, who's gentle and lowly, remember, is initiating a conversation across many, many barriers that have been put up. Barrier number one is he's conversing with a Samaritan. We've been studying as a community the exile that God's people went in. They were taken from Jerusalem out into Babylon, but they were a group that didn't go. They stayed, and they joined forces with the Canaanites, and they said, okay, well, let's make up a bit of a, a people ourselves. We'll take the elements that we like from both our different traditions, and we'll make a, a kind of a, a Samaritan life and lifestyle. So they changed some of their laws and they changed some of their um, lifestyles. And essentially, when the people returned from 
Babylon, they kind of went, whoa, who are you? Well, what have you done? You've kind, of, you've kind of put something together here, which is not what God intended. And so you can straight away say, oh, who are you to say that we're not? And who's that? And that, and, and that kind of argy-bargy that had now solidified and meant that there were big cultural barriers to a Jew connecting with a Samaritan. They would have regarded each other as being heretics. They would have, they would have, there would have been big barriers there. Not only was there that, but there was just the fact that he was a man speaking to a woman. Again, something that wasn't done without others around. Notice something that commentators have pointed out is that she's there at noon, which is just not the most appropriate time in the Middle East to go collect water. All the women would go early in the morning and would make sure they had water for the day. And one of the most probable thoughts that why she was there at noon was that the other woman wouldn't tolerate her in their presence. They wouldn't want her to be part of the to and fro to the water talking. She was an outcast of a people that were already regarded as outcasts. There were barriers. There there were many barriers, racial, religious, moral, gender, but Jesus doesn't care about those barriers. He reaches right across those divides and speaks to her. And he speaks to her about living water, living water. Again, something that might be lost in translation. When, when we got close to day zero, like we knew about living water, right? We were all like, oh yes, water, right? But right now, in the middle of winter, that's not our biggest need. But anyone in the Middle East knew that water effectively was life. Water was life. It's collection, it's caring for. And that's why Jesus rests her attention when he speaks about a water that will not leave you thirsty again, but a water that will satisfy she would, have, she would have thought back to those days in the Middle East when she is running out of water and she got that sip and she went, oh my goodness, that is what I wanted, that thirst quenching water. And Jesus is saying to her, just as you've experienced that physically, you can experience that at a soul level, soul satisfying water coming from the inside, coming from the inside. One of the commentators spoke about a pastor, uh, his, his role as a pastor, and he said, you know, this deep satisfaction that, that Jesus is talking about is, can, be, can prove elusive. It can prove elusive. And he spoke about a woman in his congregation who said she had five lives. She had five lives. She said, my first life, I was growing up in the house. I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to please my pastor. I wanted to please everything. And after a while, I realized, hey, these people aren't perfect. These people, these people I don't, I'm not getting that satisfied out of following all the rules. And so she jumped away from that life, and she had a second life, which was around romantic partnerships, you know, who, you know, what, what good is Jesus if I've got no one to take to my matric dance, effectively, you know, so off I went and looked for a life partner, and I, I'm trying to make myself attractive to others, and, and I'd have moments of highs when I had good relationships, and then lows when I was dumped, and eventually some of my friends said to me, you know what, don't live for men, you need to live for your career, you're bright, you're young, you're successful, go out there and forget about men, and so that was her third life, career, smart, young, professional, but devastatingly, she then found out that, guess what, there were more smart, young, and even more professional people out there, and it was like, no, and so that started to not satisfy, and eventually, the fourth life came along where people said, hey, man, that's all been about you, you need to care for others, you need to donate your time and your, and your, and your life to caring for others, and having spent a lot of time loving other people, and you know, laying down her life for other people eventually and explaining things to people and people still not listening to her and going, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. She was like, okay, fine, just go jump. Just go do whatever you got to do. I don't care anymore, right? And she realized she had tried all these different ways of finding soul satisfaction. And eventually she found the living water that Jesus was offering, something totally different. You see, everything else had come from the outside. It was trying to satisfy her from the outside, trying to almost splash her face occasionally and get a little bit of, 
comfort, but it never dealt with the deep soul quenching that was required. I think about us today in Cape Town, we can also struggle to understand what Jesus is offering. Because most of us, yeah, we are on the Atlantic seaboard. We're close to our goals, right? We're there, almost there. And what could be interpreted as inner emptiness can actually often just be drive, right? Like I'm almost there. I just need a, this thing I'm waking up anxious. I just need to drive my, and then get my goals. Or that little bit of anxiety of feeling you're like, no, that's, that's hope that I'm almost there. That, that's what gets me out in the morning. We tell ourselves that, yeah, we're not soul satisfied yet because we just haven't got our goals. But yet you go speak to the people who've achieved in life and it's become a little bit of a cliche. They'll say to you, it's, it's, it's not what I thought it would be. Go read the biographies. Andre Agassi hated playing tennis. I mean, it's the most like, un, unheard of thing when you read his book. And you're going, what? You, you've got the lonely rock stars, the sad multimillionaires, the depressed sports heroes. It's, it's become a cliche because when you read about it, it's, it's there. And you might say, yeah, but Paul, I'd rather have their problems. You know, I'd rather achieve my goals, be a multimillionaire, and then have their problems. But do you see that their problems are actually our problems? We've all got the same problems. We've got souls that are not satisfied, that have been made for eternity. That's the problem with the world. That's the problem with us. And that's the problem Jesus is gently nudging her towards. How's he doing that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 16, Jesus seemingly asks a random question, right? He says, go, call your husband and come here. And you're thinking, change of topic, except it's not a change of topic. He's gently nudging her towards understanding where she currently is going for soul satisfaction. She's, she's going towards men. That is her default setting, and that's where she's hoping to find life to the full. And he's showing her, you know, that actually hasn't satisfied you, right? You, you, this guy's and your husband, you've had five before, starts to make sense of why the other woman in the village probably don't want her around in the morning. They say, no, you must, you know, do your own thing here. And Jesus is coming close and he's loving her into understanding what her real need is. Um, fast forward quickly, she, she then has a question for him saying, hey, I can see you're a prophet. She says, which mountain, this is the religious topic of the day, which mountain should we worship on? And Jesus says, hey, it won't matter when the Messiah comes. It won't matter where you worship. And she goes, oh, I can't wait for Messiah to come. And he says, he is here, right? No, 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 one of those other lines that kind of reveal, okay, Jesus is more than just a good teacher. So let's pause there for there. That's the outcast. That's the outcast. Jesus coming to a gentle and lowly. We'll pick it up later. But just before that, Jesus has another encounter with an insider. Let's read about him. Now, this is chapter 3 of, chapter of John. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly, and do you pick up there's like a slightly different approach here from Jesus? With the Samaritan woman, he crosses the divides. He 
gently talks to her, offers living water, and then eventually reveals where she truly is at. But with Nicodemus, it's almost like a stern message right up front. He goes, yeah, 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 you must be born again. A little bit more chat. You must be born again. Don't forget, be born again. Like three times repeated, you must be born again. And by the way, this is where the phrase born again comes from. You might have heard it before, a born again Christian. And just a quick little sidebar here, if you a guest, you know, you've often wondered about this phrase, but there's a bit of a danger that we think, oh, born again Christian, these are, these are kind of the really enthusiastic crowd. You know, you've got the Christian crowd and then you've got the real like, I mean, loony fringe might be a harsh way of saying it, but, you know, these are people that really need God. Like, maybe they've had a rough life, they've, they've had all kinds of addictions, they've all kinds of past, they need structure, they need kind of, they need a radical reboot, and so, you know, that's what it means to be born again. It's become kind of this phrase, but to be called a born-again Christian is actually a redundancy, right? It's not possible. Everyone who follows Christ, who, who is a, a, is, has a need to be born again, that's... That's what we're seeing here, because Nicodemus is by no means someone who's kind of fragile on the fringes. I mean, he is as mainstream insider as you could possibly imagine. He's a Pharisee, so he's meticulous in his rule-keeping. He's, he's wanting to follow the God as described in the Old Testament. And you might think, oh, that means he's a narrow religious type. Oh, no, 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 look here. He's coming to Jesus, an uneducated carpenter from the Middle East, and he's saying, Rabbi. He's calling him rabbi, even though he's never gone to, you know, synagogue school. This is someone who's different. He's a leader. He's civic-minded. He's got wealth and power. It's told that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's got it all together. He's wise. He's wealthy. And then he's open to Jesus. I mean, he's coming there. Yeah, sure, it's at night because he doesn't want anyone to see him, but he's still there. He really comes across as someone who you'd think, sheesh, of all the people, this is someone who's got it all together. And yet Jesus kind of comes after him straight up and says, oh, by the way, Nicodemus, you must, be, you must be born again. None of the things that you've accomplished in life work when it comes to being born again. He interrupts him quickly because it looks like Nicodemus has latched onto something of Jesus, which isn't actually the most important part. It's, he's latched onto him as a teacher. And he said, Rabbi, I've, I've learned lots of interesting things. Don't you want to teach me? And Jesus wants to quickly say, no, 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 you shouldn't come to me as a teacher. You should come to me as someone who's going to save you, not someone who's just going to teach you. I'm going to come and reform you, transform you. You need to be totally redone. I think a metaphor which often is used here, which might be helpful to understand what's happening, is a metaphor of a seed. Jesus would often speak about the kingdom being like a seed. Um, in our old home in Rondebosch, we planted a lemon tree. Now, this lemon tree has done wonders, and we have many, many lemons. Now imagine if we said, you know what, lemons are great, but there's only so much lemonade, right? There's only so much gin and tonic. Like there's, 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 there's a need maybe for avos. And we said, let's rather grow avos on our lemon tree. Imagine how, imagine how we could go about it. We could prune it. We could like cut it down and be like, come on, try hard a little lemon tree. We could prune it, but it's not going to produce avos, right? Or we could maybe take some avos and like just hang them on the plant. And just be like, hey, be inspired by the nearby avos, right? Come on, like, grow avos like your buddy. Uh, we would laugh at that scenario and say, like, there's no ways that would work, right? If you want new fruit, you need new roots. If you want new fruit, you need new roots. It's the same for us as people. I mean, we can laugh at my attempts at agriculture, but yet, every now in life, when we might get a sense that we need God, we can prune our lives a bit. We can try a little bit of religion. 
We can read the Bible, get it, get it out. We can kind of stop particular practices that we know we probably shouldn't be doing. What are we really doing in that moment? We're pruning. We're pruning our lives. We're pruning our lives. And we can do it in spurts, but it just ultimately doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. Because as Jesus would say, you must be born again. There needs to be a new birth, an action of God that gets implanted into the base of your life. A seed that germinates and produces blossoms and flowers. It's a supernatural thing that has to take place. And so people in our community, I hope, are reading their Bible. They're coming on Sundays. They're loving people. They're attending. But those are all accidents. Those are all things that happen after the main event. The incident, the, the thing is that the, the new birth has taken place. The seed has taken root. What has happened that has really changed everything is at the base. It's happened in our hearts. You see, with the woman at the well, Jesus approached her and gently drew her attention to the fact that his soul satisfaction is in all the wrong places. And what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus is he's saying, your soul has also been satisfied in the wrong place. At the moment, it's all self-satisfaction. You're going through life, hitting your goals, achieving all the things, being an ultimate insider. But it's just pruning. It's not new life. And so Jesus says to him, what, what did you have to do with your birth? essentially, right? You see it there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying to Nicodemus, yeah, yeah, you've got all these impressive things, but, but what did you do with your birth? Like, how much, did you choose your family? Did you choose your mom? Did you choose the moment? And of course, the answer would be, no, I didn't. I had nothing to do with my birth. And Jesus then says to him, so in the same way, you're going to have nothing to do with your rebirth, with your second birth. And I hope all of us are like shocked again, going, what, Jesus? Of all the people... I'll just call him Nico. Hey, it's a little South African example. Nico, of all the people, Nico is the one who should have a head start on all of us. I mean, he's lived his life in a tidy way. He had all these Cape Tonians experimenting, doing all kinds of crazy things with mushrooms and whatever else. And we're like, what? I thought I'd experimented my way into a place where, where God wouldn't want me, where God would be kind of like, oh, the Cape Tonians. I'm not sure about them. But, but Nicodemus, Nico, surely he's the one that God would come close to and say, oh, I'm so grateful I got you. You just need a little top up. You know, you're a seven out of 10, Nico. I just need to top you up. How dare Jesus say to this pillar of society, you must be born again. And notice the word, guys, underlined there, unless, unless, it's categorical. There's, there's, there's no getting out of it. Unless there's air, there'll be no fire. Unless there's rain, there's going to be no crops. Unless you're born again, there's going to be no Christ following. This is the centerpiece. Anyone who's described Christianity to you without being born again, without that, is, is selling you false goods. And so here's the good news. No matter where you've been in life and what you've done in life, you don't stand behind someone like Nicodemus. You don't stand you know, rose back when it comes to God's love and his favor and his grace and his mercy. Don't you see that you're not behind him at all? We're all in the same spot. The only way, the only way to be healed, to find salvation, is by being born again. Timothy Keller, who I said I've leaned a lot on for this message, says the following. He says, sin, sin is looking to something else besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God, becoming your own savior and Lord. So you see both the outcast, the Samaritan woman who is looking for her soul satisfaction in men and the insider who is looking for his soul satisfaction in his self-satisfaction and his kind of marshalling of his actions so that, that God had to kind of love him and be on his side. Both of them 
are actually in need of hope and in need of the same thing. Now, Nicodemus is more kind of socially acceptable, but he's also equally avoiding God. He's looking to his own deeds. And he's probably quite insufferable when he's kind of nailing it. He's like full of pride, walking around going, you know, be like me. And maybe um, you hear today and you said, Paul, I appreciate all of this, but, you know, I'm not really religious. What I'm just trying to do with my life, I'm just trying to be a moral and good person. I make my mistakes, but I'm just going to go through life being moral and good. And I'm hoping, whether there's a God or not, that that's good enough, right? That's just me. I, I find all this confusing. People create more heat than light. So that's what I'm going to try to do, to live a moral, good life. Well, can I, can I just think about this? Think about, let's slow it down. Let's think about a mom, single mom, who, who pours out her life for her one son. And she, she saves up, she works extra jobs, she manages to get him into the best schools, he gets educated, and this mom is always telling him, hey, son, please, like, make good choices, you know, wise choices, like, I'm pouring all this into you, please go for it. And you know what, he's successful, he does it, he nails it, he qualifies, he's a doctor, he's rocket scientist, and he, he goes out into this world. And imagine if he says, my mom always said, make wise choices, so that's what I'm doing, I'm making wise choices. I don't see mom much anymore. I send her a birthday card, uh, I phone her, you know, uh, on, on the holidays, but I'm just gonna try to live a good and moral life without her. How would you, if you had time with that son, how would you kind of like talk to them? What would you say? Would you say, great approach, or would you say, hey, I think your mom deserves more than a good and moral life. I would say she probably longs for relationship. She, she deserves love. She laid it all down, and you've kind of just gone on with life without her. Now, that is an imperfect metaphor, but imagine if there is a God. If there is a God, He's given us everything. He's given us our lives. He deserves it all. And the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, they need to see that. You and I, we need to see that. That living a good and moral life, not only is it very hard to do, but it's actually not at all what God's made us for. He's made us for relationship. We need living water and we need to be born again. So what's the solution to the world? What's the solution to everything that we see around? I think Jesus is approaching us just as he approached them and he's saying, don't look for fake soul quenchers in life. Don't, don't think a bit more drive, a bit more oomph, and then you'll arrive. Don't believe that lie, whether it's your career, your relationships, your moral deeds, that is gonna never satisfy your soul. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who offers life from the inside out, living water. And you might then ask, well, Paul, how do I know if I really get Jesus? How do I know if I've seen him and I've got his kingdom? Well, let's look at the Samaritan woman and let's look at Nicodemus. Jesus spoke, by the way, in John 3, go read it. He says, you can't see the wind, right? You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. Right now, if I told you, the wind is blowing in the sanctuary, you'd look around and be like, no, it's not. And I'll be like, how do you know? You can't see wind. And you say, well, it's got no effect in here. If the wind was blowing in the sanctuary, there'd be papers flying, little banker card details, you know, foo, it would be chaotic. Then you'd know it's here. And so Jesus is saying to us, the Spirit's at work, if we really see Him, we should see its effects. We should see growth in our lives. What about the lady? Go read it, the Samaritan lady. She leaves the well, goes running into her town, the town that wants nothing to do with her, the lady who's had five husbands, and she tells them, guys, the prophet, the Messiah is here. He has living water. Come. She forgets all the reasons why she might be vengeful, why she might have unforgiveness. She just goes out and says, I have seen him. I can't hide away in nude anymore. I'm going absolutely public. Streams of living water are offered to others because she's enjoying the streams of living water. 
What would it be like for us to invite neighbors and friends to Alpha? I think it would be us just saying, man, I've had my soul quenched so much by Jesus. Why wouldn't I offer that to other people? Why wouldn't I say, hey, there's lots of other things we could do with our lives as Cape Townians, lots of other things, but try this one, the timeless one, the one that Jesus Christ offers, streams of living water, rest for your souls. And ultimately, she would then see on the cross, Jesus Christ saying, I am thirsty. Why, why she can have streams of living water flowing through her life is because he was thirsty as he, as he dealt with our sin and, and was our substitute. You see the wind blowing through her life as she goes public and offers it to others. And you see the wind blowing through Nicodemus's life. Go read once Christ's body is on the cross and he's passed away. Go read who is it that with great social cost goes and asks for his body. Who says, please, can I have his body? Can I put it in a, temp, uh, in a tomb? Can I care for his body? It's Nicodemus. It's Nicodemus who used to come at night so no one would see him, is saying, can I go very publicly and take the body of someone who's just been crucified? Can I identify that closely with him? It had, it had huge implications. I mean, imagine people going, what are you doing with his body? I thought you were a religious leader. I thought you were an insider. He's taking great risk to his own life to do that. Why would he do that? What could possibly explain it? I think it's because he's seen that when you've got Christ, you've got all the safety you need. You've got, you've got living water flowing through your life. He'd seen the king. He'd seen the king. The wind had blown in his life, and you could see the effects. So it is with us. Can I call the band up? We're going to have an opportunity to respond. And I suppose I want to ask you, how about you? Do you know the second birth? Do you know what it means to be born again? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a congregational minister, used to ask people, are you a Christian? It was like a little test that he'd ask. He'd say, are you a Christian? And he found people would answer in different ways. Some people would say, well, um, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. And he'd say, okay, I, I can see there's some understanding still required because you still think, like Nicodemus, you need to try to be a Christian. You need to try. Or maybe some people would say to him, you know, in response, are you a Christian? They'd say, of course I am. What a silly question. What made you think I wasn't a Christian? And he would say, oh, okay, there's still work here because it seems like you've put a big credence on, on how you behave and how you kind of perceive by others. What he'd love to hear is for people to say, are oh, you a Christian? Say yes. And isn't it amazing? What a joke. Like me, the things that I've done in my life, I'm, I'm not coming here as the one who's earned it. I'm coming one who's received a great gift. I might've been the outcast. I might've been the insider. It doesn't matter who it is, but I've I've seen Christ as the living water, and I want to give my life freshly to him. And if you ask Paul, I, I can't answer like that today. I'd say to you, well, come to Christ now as we respond in song. Come to him. You must be born again. Come to him. Offer him your life.